Well, good morning. We're going to go ahead and get started this morning. Um, remember, uh, last week we started with uh, this study at the Woman at the Well, and we were going to do it in two parts, and so we get to finish that up today. It's a long scripture reading. Um, John chapter 4, we're going to pick up where we left off last week at verse 16, and we're going all the way to verse 42. So John uh, chapter 4, verse 16 uh, through 42. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one who you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. For the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went went her way into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? When they went out of the city and came, then they went out of the city and came to him. And in the meantime, his disciples had urged him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to him, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For it is in this saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified He told me everything that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. And then they said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that he is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for our time this morning. Father, we ask that you uh, use your word to um, to teach us truth. Father, this morning we pray that you will uh, change our hearts and our minds and make us more like Christ this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
So last week as we started this section of God's Word, we uh, said that, remember, we learned, or I should say, that Jesus had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria is what uh, John tells us. And um, we, we, we know that He had to go there because He had an appointment here. And there is where He met this Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. She is an immoral Samaritan woman. Um, and he got her attention by offering her this living water. Now she, remember last week, as we uh, in in the last verses, uh, last reading, I think in verse is, is fifteen, she wanted that living water. That definitely got her attention. She wanted it, but she really didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. And so today we get to pick up where Jesus continues to teach her. And he is going to get uh, actually straight to the heart of the matter. In verse 16, he says, Go, call your husband and come here. Uh, to this she replied in verse 17, I have no husband. It was clear that his uh, intimate knowledge of her um, morally depraved life um, not only indicated he had a supernatural ability as he's God, but it also focused what he did by doing this is it also focused the attention or the conversation on her spiritual condition. And after she replied, I have no husband, Jesus uh, kind of shocked her a little bit here in uh, the second half of verse 17 and 18. And he said, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, just for a moment, think about the woman at the well, this unnamed woman. How, how would you respond if someone whom you had just met, okay, just met them, uh, how would you respond if, if you just met them and they have detailed knowledge about your life? Okay, detailed knowledge about your life and your past. Uh, particular, they'd have details about things in your past that you would rather people not know or that you are most ashamed of. Well, this is what happened at this point to this woman. So you can just imagine what's going over her, what's going through her mind at this point. Okay, she's, how does he even know these things? And, and these things, these are things I wish nobody would know. I've been trying to, and I haven't been able to hide all these things, but I wish uh, that nobody even knew these things. Well, that's, that's where she is. And so she had to be thinking to herself, how in the world does he know these things about me? Well, she comes to a conclusion that this man, this knowledge this guy has, uh, this man has, obviously didn't come from him, it came from God. And so she says here in verse 19, she says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Well, this is a reasonable uh, deduction on her part uh, because uh, she's 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 again she realizes there, there's no way you would have this knowledge if it wasn't given to you uh, from a higher power from God. But she's still shocked. She's still embarrassed. She still wants to change the subject, and so she attempts to move the conversation away from a private life. And so she wants to get into a theological question with Jesus. She wants to debate something with Him. Obviously, you're a prophet, so let me ask you a theological question. And the question is the one that the Jews and the Samaritans had been debating for years. She asked the question in verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. 
But you, because you recognize he was a Jew, say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Do you see she's trying to change the subject a little bit? I don't want to talk about my private life. Let's let's talk about something else, okay? So she's asking, what's the proper place then? You're a prophet? Where's the proper place to worship God? The, the Jews had their temple in Jerusalem, and the Samaritans had their place um, there at Mount Gerizim. So, and remember, we went over that last week. We went over the history of that, how they got to that, and, and all those things in, in our brief, uh, short history lesson last week. She, uh, Dr. Sproul made a point, she may have genuinely been interest, interested in the answer to this question, but we think she's just trying to move the debate or the conversation away from her private life. And so Jesus replies here in verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem where you worship the Father. Now, some people um, may read this verse and get the idea that Jesus was saying something like this. It doesn't matter whether you come to the Father according to the ways of the Samaritans or according to the ways of the Jews. Some, 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 make, um, some make the inference here because Jesus said that true worshipers would worship neither on Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem. So he's, they're saying that, that, that somehow, by Jesus' words here, that, he, that Jesus is saying it really doesn't matter how you worship God. Okay, that's what some people would take from this. But as we look at these verses, that is not an accurate way of interpreting these verses in the context as they were given. What Jesus was saying is there was no reason uh, to debate the actual location because Jesus knew, and He's trying to tell her, very soon both places are going to be obsolete. Okay, very soon. And so neither of these places very soon will have any role to play in how people worship God. Well, what else does Jesus say? Verse 22, He says, You worship, and she's again talking to a Samaritan woman, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Remember, the, the Samaritans only uh, acknowledged the first five books of the Bible. They did not have the complete Old Testament. They rejected uh, the other books of the Bible. And basically, Jesus was saying here, you're an agnostic. Okay? And, and you've, you've heard that word agnostic uh, before. It comes uh, from a Greek word that means without knowledge. So Jesus is saying, there's a lot of things you don't know. Okay? Jesus is saying that the Samaritans worshipped without knowledge. But He made the distinction. But not so with the Jews. They have the full Old Testament. Uh, their worship is based on true knowledge of God as revealed in the Scriptures, in the Scriptures of the Old Testament. So clearly Jesus was not saying that it doesn't matter how you worship. Okay, Because He's making a difference. The Samaritans, you don't have the knowledge the Jews do. Their, their, their worship is based on knowledge of the Old Testament. So it, clearly he was not saying it doesn't matter. Okay, he, he was not saying it does not matter how you worship. On Again, on the contrary, he was saying 
that one way is wrong and one way is right. Now Jesus follows up with an important statement about worship. In verses 23 through 24, we read these words. I'm going to go close that back door. How about that? You got it? Okay. That's a... <clears throat> Verses 23 and 24. Jesus says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And before we get into the heart of this, uh, what He's saying here, when, he, when Jesus refers to the hour, He says, but the hour is coming. Uh, this, refer, this hour refers uh, to Jesus' death, His resurrection, and His ascension, having completed the work of redemption. That's what Jesus is referring to. And here in the commentary at this point, Dr. Sproul makes, um, he says there's several things that we need to say about this verse. And uh, the first thing that we need to say about this verse. The modern Christian tends to be ignorant of the Old Testament. Okay? The modern Christian tends to have an ignorance about the Old Testament because... What And what follows that is an ignorance of the character of the Father. Okay, that's an ignorance of the Old Testament. What follows behind that is an ignorance of the character of the Father. The modern Christian, if you want to say, uh, will uh, most times think that Christianity centers exclusively around Jesus. Well, of course, Christ, uh, the Messiah, is a major part of our faith, right? Without the hour, the, His death, resurrection, and ascension, we have no salvation. But we need to remember that what Christ came to do was to reconcile us back to the Father. Okay, the Father has a major, major role in everything. And we know this, but sometimes we just tend to focus on Christ, Okay, But Christ came to reconcile us to the Father. And in one sense, our worship should be focused on the Father as we gather for worship. We should be focused on the Father. That is why Jesus said, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. True, we worship a triune God. Okay? One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we must never forget the majesty of the Father. Okay, we must never forget the majesty of the Father and all His greatness. That should be in our minds as we come into worship. As we gather uh, to worship. There are... Uh, I went to two places in Scripture that help me remember the greatness of the Father and the majesty of the Father. I will read the first one. You'll know where it comes from. 
In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting high upon the throne, high and lifted up. And the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now you will recognize that's from Isaiah 5, the first five Verses. What do you? What picture now do you see? That imagery. Okay, that that was a vivid. Some vivid details here. Okay. When we approach worship, we're approaching the throne room of God, and we need to remember the majesty of the Father as we approach that. Then another place that I went to, and you'll recognize this as well. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings and full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor to Him who thanks, who sits, who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, The 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns down before the the throne saying, Worthy are You, O Lord and God, to receive glory and power and honor for You created all things. And by Your will they existed and were created. That's John, right? In Revelation, right? The, the, The vision... That, that that God gave him. What, what did the heavenly creatures say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of God. And they never stop. Constantly. Before the throne of God. Now. Think about that. When we gather for worship on the Lord's day. We gather in a very real sense in that throne room. Physically we are not there. Right? Spiritually, we are. When those who gather and worship in spirit and truth, they are there at the throne room worshiping with all the saints and with the heavenly creatures. My friends, there is nothing casual about that. There is not one thing casual about the worship of the living God. And this, I guess, this reminder of the greatness of the Father should change the way we approach worship. Secondly, the issue of uh, worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth is often misunderstood. What Jesus was saying is that worship, the worship we offer must come from the soul, from our heart, from our innermost being, the depths of our heart, the very core of who we are. That's where worship comes from. When, when and it's a wonderful uh, time because we read the, we're here at Christmas season when when Mary sang her song of praise to God. We call it the Magnificat. What did she say? Remember, 
What did she say about her soul? What did Mary, the mother of Jesus, say about her soul? My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. That is wonderful worship. Coming from where? Not from her lips, right? It's coming from her soul. It's coming from her very core of who she is. And that's an example of true worship. And the Scriptures often give us examples of quite the opposite, don't they? Jeremiah exposed such worship when the Lord sent him to the temple to declare this, Do not trust in these lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. He, He was exhorting them to take no pride in the temple itself, the physical being. Why? It's going to be destroyed. Isn't that what Jesus' point here about the where, where the, the two places you're going to worship? It's very soon, neither one of those places is even going to matter. Right? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jesus, uh, Jeremiah was warning the people that their worship had become dead. Okay? It was dead. It was reduced to external formalism. What does that mean? They're just going through the motions. That's it. Show up. Go to the motions. Do what I'm supposed to do. Stand up when the preacher says stand up. Sit down when he says sit down. Put my money in the plate. Uh, whatever you want to do, I'll sing when I'm supposed to sing. And my heart is nowhere in it. That's what Jeremiah was saying. Well, brothers and sisters, God does not want that kind of worship. He does not want that at all. That is dead religion. And it is not true faith. We are uh, to approach the Father with hearts filled with a sense of awe and reverence and adoration. We're like those elders who, who bow down before Him and cast their crowns before Him and they, because they owe everything to Him. And that sense of our heart, of our soul, is just filled with amazement at the glory of the Father. And so Jesus' point here is that a person must worship simply not by some external motions or external conformity to some sort of ritual. Okay, to some uh, to some place, maybe even where, you know, it's it's about a certain building. But he's saying we have to worship inwardly in the spirit. Okay, with the proper heart attitude. That's what Jesus's point here was saying. The worship uh, that we offer is to be a sacrifice of praise to his amazing name and to our amazing great name of God. Lastly, we are told that by Jesus that worship is to be done in truth. R.C. commented here that the church today has been exposed to what he called experimental worship. That should scare you. Okay? Experimental worship should scare you. He says that the church today has been exposed to that. He said these experiments, okay, that we see in modern churches are driven by polls that ask people, what do you want in worship? How do you want the worship service to be, dear churchgoer? What 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 kind of sermons do you want to hear? 
Do you want to feel good when you leave here? The assumption based on uh, this experimental worship is that we need as church leaders to tailor our worship to meet the felt needs of the people. Because if we don't do that, then our churches are going to be empty because the people will become bored and they will be uninterested and they will see the church as irrelevant. We would call those seeker-sensitive, right? We would call that. That's a term that's used, right? Very. Uh, uh, what, what, what do the people want? Now we'll tailor our worship to them. So what does Jesus say about that? Jesus says the Father wants people to worship Him according to what He wants. According to what He says is acceptable. In worship. There was one worship service recorded for us in the Bible that was designed just by these things. It was designed to minister to the felt needs of the people. It was designed to give them exactly what they wanted. We read about it in Exodus 32. The worship of the golden calf. Was that true worship? Absolutely not. Was it what the people wanted? Yes, that's what they wanted. It was not true worship. It was a display of idolatry. Okay, before the living God. We know how that worked out for the people. God is not playing around. That's what we God, God is a holy God. He's not playing around with worship. We need to keep a very close eye on what we do in worship because it must be based on what God has revealed in Scripture. Now we talked about this. I guess it was last Sunday night, and the preacher mentioned it. Because the fact is our worship must be based on the truth as revealed uh, in His Word. And we call that, as churchmen and as churchgoers, we call, in, especially in our denomination, we have a word that describes how we do worship, and it's called the regulative principle. Okay, The PCA denomination in the Book of Church Order says we will use the regulative principle when designing our worship services. What does that mean? It just means we don't do anything in worship. It's not specifically prescribed in God's Word. And we don't want to do anything else. Why? Because of what we just said about who the Father is. He has prescribed how He will be worshipped. And it's not about what I want to give. It's not about my ideas, my felt needs. It's about giving back to Him what He has commanded and He deserves. So... Jesus' words about worship have now brought the woman back. Remember, she's trying to change the subject, right? But she's brought him back to the subject at hand. And so here in verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. So at first, she assumed that Jesus was a prophet. 
And now she is talking about the Messiah. Then, here at this point, Jesus, who at many times, as we know, as we study His life and ministry, was unwilling to reveal exactly who He was, right? But here in verse 26, Jesus says, I who speak to you am He. Now when she heard this, she became very excited. She uh, had come to this well every day, at noon, with all the baggage that we talked about before with that. But this day was completely different. She was, she was so excited after these words that she left her pot and returned uh, to town. We don't even know if she ever filled her water pot. It's not told to us whether that even happened. But she couldn't wait to get back to town. Remember, remember, her, remember her background. She is an outcast in this town. but she can't wait to get back there to tell about what just happened here at the well. R.C. mentioned here at this point that he tells a story about a children's book that he read one time by Max Lucado. It was titled, If Only I Had a Green Nose. Okay, we have that book. Thank you. I didn't should know that, but I don't didn't know that. Uh, so in this book, a brief description of it. Anybody else have this in their home? Y'all have that. Very good. So in uh, this book, and please correct me if I say anything wrong here, there is a group of <laughs> there's a group of chi- <laughs> there's a group of children who are not satisfied with how God has made them. And so there's a fellow in town. His name was what Willie Withit. That's his name, right? And he has the wonderful uh, position to uh, declare what is in. And I use that in quotation marks, okay? What's in? What's in style? Okay? That's what he gets to do. Well, he decreed that if you want to be with it, again, in quotation marks, then you needed to have a green nose. And so everyone who um, wanted to have to be in with it had to paint their nose green. Well, then the style would change. And the next thing that, you know, you've got to have now, you've got to have a yellow nose. The green nose has got no nose, you've got to have a yellow nose. So everyone that had a green nose, painted their nose green, now they've got to change it to a yellow nose. And then the style changes again to red noses. And it was one thing after another. Finally, someone comes to Willie with it and says, Who made you the thing picker? Who made you the thing picker? And then the story ends. Well, commenting on this children's book, R.C. says, I wonder, sometimes wonder, uh, if people think about me, who made you the preacher? Who made you the preacher? You ever thought about that? Anybody? You ever thought about that? Who made you the preacher? Well, what right, and this is R.C., okay, what right, uh, he's thinking about people coming to him, what right do you have to stand in the pulpit and to tell people how to worship or what to do? What right do you have to do that? Well, many Christians have probably heard something similar to that when they were witnessing, right? Who are you to tell me that maybe what I'm doing is wrong? Or who are you to tell me that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Who are you to do that? 
Well, the greatest, this is R.C.'s words, the greatest answer I've ever heard on this is a quote. I am just one beggar telling other beggars where they can find bread. I am just one beggar telling the other beggars where they can find bread. And R.C. says, that's really all, all I am. And that's really all any of us are. Isn't that right? That's really all any of us are. Well, that was what the Samaritan woman was. And so she makes it back to town and she's telling everybody. And she says the words in verse 29, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Now, she didn't go into town and say, Hey, I'm a righteous person now. I got my life all together. Uh, She didn't command everyone to follow her. She simply told them she has met the Messiah. And she wanted everyone in the town to know. And for the first time in her life, she was not agnostic. She was not without knowledge. She she knew something. She suddenly understood some things about God and things of God. And then, of course, John tells us in the middle of all this, the, the disciples had returned with food. Remember, they went down to buy food and urged Jesus to eat. And then he said this in verse 31, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. And, and they're confused, right? They're, they're saying, well, did someone else bring you food while we're gone? Right? Did, did that happen? So Jesus clarifies here in verse 34, and he says, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. That's that's who Jesus is. That's That's what His ministry was all about, isn't it? He's, he's echoing. If, if When you hear that, again, you can go back to put your Old Testament ears on for a minute, right? And remember back uh, to some words in uh, these words that Moses has recorded for us in Deuteronomy 8.3. He says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Deuteronomy saying what? Life's more than bread. Life is more than bread. In the words of the Lord, in His words, are life. It is the very life that I need to sustain me, right? His, so Jesus was saying that His food, His drink, His meat, His water, all those things, basic needs of life that He needs. We've already established He's fully man, right? He was thirsty. He's tired here at the well. Remember? He's been traveling. He's, he's obviously thirsty. He's wearied from the travel. But what He's saying is that it's His food and His drink and His meat and water, whatever He needs, His zeal, okay, His passion was to do everything that the Father has sent Him to do. And that was what was his passion, his his motivation, was to do everything to be completely obedient to the words of the Father. And we can say that the obedience to and dependence upon God's will summed up Jesus' entire life. That's what it was about, wasn't it? Complete obedience to the Father. And of course, that included ministering to the people of Samaria. The people that the Jews didn't want to have anything to do with. 
And we see here he's offering this living water, this living water that wells up as a leaping water, I think we said it last week, and it wells up to eternal life. It's part of his food to do this, to minister to these people. Verses 35 through 36, Jesus again saying, Do you not say that there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Amazing words from the mouth of Jesus. Now this, to, to so we can kind of, as far as the calendar goes, this event probably happened in December or January which was about four months from when the harvest would be. The harvest would be a normal spring harvest. And so Jesus is using the fact that, you know, here we're surrounded by crops growing in the field, right? Um, They're waiting to be harvested. But he used them as an object lesson because he used that to illustrate the urgency of reaching the lost. The urgency of reaching the lost, which the harvest symbolized. He's talking about people here, right? He's talking about people. He's and, he, and he's referring here to the Samaritans. The look, look here, here we are. And, and at this point, they're probably approaching the scene again, right? They're, they're the woman's gone in and she's torn in town and come see this man who knows everything about me. They're approaching. Look here, here are the fields. It's harvest time. These people need to hear truth. Lift up your eyes, he tells them. Lift up your eyes. The fields are white for harvest. Verse 39, it says, Many Samaritans from that town believe in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything that I ever did. And then John adds that because of her witness in verse 39, it tells us that many believed. And remember, they believed not just simply based on her testimony, but then he did what? They asked him to stay there for two days. Please don't leave. Would you stay here with us? Eagerly invited him into their community. Please stay. Please don't leave. We have that. We see that many times in Jesus' ministry where he has interacted and it's made a remarkable difference. And people say, what? Please stay. Don't, don't leave. Right? Don't leave. And we would say the same thing. If he was visiting here, we'd say, please don't leave. Please stay forever. Don't ever leave. We know Jesus couldn't stay there forever. He stayed two days. And what does it tell us? Many of them believe for themselves, not based now on her testimony, but they believe because of the words they heard directly from Jesus. And so Jesus had to, after that time, his, his, his food and drink, what the Father had him to do was done, and he had to move on. As we come to uh, the conclusion of, of this uh, section, the, the only thing that kind of really was on my mind, uh, or the lot on my mind, but uh, as we kind of sum this up uh, today in, in closing, Who have you told lately about what Jesus has done for you? When was the last time you told somebody what Jesus has done for you? That's that's what she did. This This woman just met Him. She didn't have all the answers, right? She 
she's not a uh, she's still got a lot to learn. But what is she? What does she say? She, she said, "Come meet this man who told me everything I ever did." What you know? Think about it as we as we invite. We, we do, in a sense, invite people to Christ. But we, we 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 tell them right. We need to tell them. Not we don't need to preach to people in the sense because uh, that that we need to talk down to them. But we need to tell them about Jesus, and we need to tell them what. What has he done for me? Let make it. You get down on a personal level, right? What's he done for you? Let me let me just let me just tell you what Jesus has done for me. He's taken away uh, all my guilt. I can stand before the Father, cleansed and acceptable, and I don't have to go run and hide. He he's there with. He's an advocate for me with the Father. I mean, you can just go on and on and on. You can just think about how many ways Jesus has changed uh, your life. And that's what we need to tell people about. We need to tell people, others, non-believers especially, what's Jesus done for me? Let me tell you about it. Any questions or any comments? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for our time this morning. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Father, we thank You that we have it. Uh, Father, forgive us when um, we assume that uh, it's not important in our lives. Father, it is. It is life. It is our food and our drink. Your words, uh, doing Your will after You, um, being good examples, uh, but pointing people to You, Father, to the to the Father and the Son. Uh, Father, and the Holy Ghost. And we just thank You for our time this morning. Father, as we leave our time of study, Father, as we approach our worship service, may what sets at the forefront of our mind is Your majesty in the throne room of heaven, Your glory, the, the angels crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Father, give us that sense of amazement and adoration and awe as we approach You today in worship. We pray that our worship will be acceptable before You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.